Good morning, church. It is uh, good to be uh, with you this morning. Good to be with uh, people, my wife and daughter in San Diego. It's been me and the dogs at home, so it's uh, really good to be with you. It is every week. Uh, I want to invite you uh, Friday, I don't know if we'll, we'll all bump into each other if you respond to this, but hopefully we, a few of us will bump into each other. Friday night is the last uh, Auburn cruise night. And we've got at least a couple people in our congregation who, uh, Lord willing, will have uh, cars there that night. But it's just a good time, Friday night, uh, downtown. Um, Rich, will you hold your hand up back there? Everybody say hi to Rich. And where's Leroy at? Where's Leroy? And anybody else have a car? Anybody else? Can... Anyway, yeah, Roger. A couple cars. Yeah, a few of you. So if you have any questions, see them. But basically just head to downtown, Old Town, something, you know, whatever. Not Old Town. You know where to go. Um, what do you call that? Lincoln. Lincoln. Yeah, yeah. All right, I need to preach here. Let's get going. In fact, let me uh, pray one more time. Hope to see many of you on, on Friday night. Let's pray briefly. Father in heaven, uh, we need you and your word uh, much more than we know. And so I pray now that you would give us a hunger uh, to hear from you. Uh, Lord, as I've already prayed uh, today, I cannot possibly know um, what each one here is dealing with, but I'm so thankful that I don't need to know what each one is dealing with because you know. You know the number of hairs on our head, and you know how this word, today's unit of scripture, needs to speak into the lives of those that are here. So I'm just asking God by your spirit that you would give us a hunger to hear what we need to hear from you today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Proverbs 1 uh, says, Listen, my son, to your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. They will be a garland to grace your head and a chain to adorn your neck. In the early chapters of Proverbs, we see the transfer of wisdom from one generation to the next. We read there about the way things ought to be. We read about how a godly father and mother are to transfer wisdom, biblical wisdom, to the next generation. And that is to go on over and over and over. The central truth or wisdom in the book of Proverbs is there a couple times, but we see it in Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. If we wanted to summarize the book of Proverbs in one verse or had a theme verse, this would be it. And to paraphrase it, the beginning of wisdom is having reverence and awe before God, knowing His power and His holiness and His majesty and His love. That is the beginning of wisdom. And the ideal situation is parents pass this understanding of God and the truths of his word down to the next generation. This is ideal. But the reality is life is rarely ideal. Most of us uh, do not have generations of godliness as we look back to our parents our grandparents, our great-great-grandparents, our great-great-great-grandparents. Some of you do, and that is beautiful. 
And that is ideal. And that is the way that it ought to be. But we live in a world where there are battles with the flesh. This world is broken. You don't need me to convince you of that. You, you, you saw the brokenness in this world this week in your own life. I don't know how, but you saw it. You saw it in yourself. So the world is not the way that it should be. So we have this ideal, but what I want to say to you today, and what, what I'm really trying to say is what today's passage wants to say to you today, is that one does not need a godly father or a godly mother to show us the way. That's ideal. But many of us don't have that. And in today's passage, Jonathan doesn't have that. And yet he finds his way in a beautiful and glorious way. We're about to look at it. So God's wisdom and joy is available to everyone. If you're here today, some of us maybe don't even know who our parents really are. God's wisdom and joy is available to you if that's your situation. For many of us, our parents didn't pass down, or our grandparents or our great-grandparents didn't pass down this wisdom that we read about in Proverbs 1. Our lives are not ideal. That's the case for Jonathan as well. His, his father, Saul, has been anointed king of Israel. But you remember uh, Inauguration Day? Uh, the, the, the king, uh, Jonathan's father, w- w- was he ready to lead? Was he ready to go? Was he where, was he, where he should be? Say, no. He's hiding among the baggage. This is the kind of father that Jonathan has. He's hiding among the baggage when it's time for him to lead. That was in chapter 10. In today's passage, we're going to get there in just a moment, the mighty superpower, the Philistines, they divide their army into three raiding parties, three platoons, if you will. And they are going after Israel, and they have the strength to wipe out Israel. As this is happening... The king, the commander-in-chief, Saul, we're going to read about it in a moment, is under a pomegranate tree. Now that might not mean a lot to you, but let me paraphrase. This might be stretching or contextualizing it a little bit too much, but what we should, we're going to read that in in a few minutes, what we should hear when we read that is Saul is at the Ritz-Carlton with his guys. The pomegranate tree was rare. They were coveted spots to hang out, luxurious places to be. The superpower of the world has divided into three groups, and they're coming after you. And Jonathan's dad, the king, the commander-in-chief, is at the Ritz-Carlton with some of his soldiers. So the king has little military awareness about what is going on around him. How Jonathan finds his way, even though he doesn't have a godly example in his father, is central to today's is central is it is central to today's passage. And it is highly relevant to your life and to my life and to us finding our way regardless of what kind of legacy or heritage 
we have in our family. Today's passage points the reader to two things. Two things I'm going to highlight. We need more than Christian parents, more than Christian grandparents. I hope you have that. But if you don't, Jonathan does not have an exemplary father in today's passage. So let's get to it finally. Enough by way of introduction. We've got some text uh, to cover today. We're actually beginning in chapter 13. Let me uh, turn your attention, hopefully you have your Bibles or devices open, to chapter 13. Look with me at verse 17. Raiding parties went out from the Philistine camp in three detachments. I've already alluded to that. And, and things do not look good. Uh, we know this. Look at verse 19. It says, Not a blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel, because the Philistines had said, Otherwise the Hebrews will make swords and spears. So we have an Israelite army with no technology. They, they have no aircraft carriers. They have no air superiority. Uh, literally, they have two swords. They don't have the ability to make weaponry. Jump your eyes down to verse 22. So on the day of the battle, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or a spear in his hand. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had them. So the two main leaders, the commander-in-chief and his son, have a weapon of this army. <laughs> and there's more to this than just the fact that only those two had a weapon. You see, the writer of 1 Samuel wants us to see all throughout this section the contrast between the father and the son, between King Saul and Jonathan. They both have a weapon. How are they going to steward that weapon? As they are about to get wiped out by the superpower, that's what an objective person would be saying in this context. How are they going to steward their weapons? They both have one, and they both have the responsibility to lead. So the father and the son have the same weapon, but we're going to see they have opposite plans moving forward. Let's come back to our text here and look at chapter 13 and verse 23. Let's go, go ahead and work through verse 3 of the next chapter, verse 14. So I'm in 13:23. Now a detachment of Philistines had gone out to the pass at Michmash. One day, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to the young man bearing his armor, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. So here's the omniscient narrator, uh, you literary people. He, he's giving us a clue, and this is important. He didn't tell his father. Now, the text doesn't tell us exactly why he didn't tell his father. But I want to suggest it's because he and his father are in very different places spiritually. They're in very different places as far as their trust and confidence in the Lord. And it is possible that his father would not want him to do the courageous and valiant thing that he's about to do. Again, the text doesn't tell us, but a reading of this entire thing says they're not on the same page. And because of that, the son... Jonathan doesn't tell his father, the commander-in-chief, what he's going to do. That's a bad sign, by the way. We've got a few military people in here today, even active duty. It is not good 
I've never been in the military. But it is not good when the commander-in-chief doesn't know what his, his officer is doing. And the narrator is telling us this. Verse 2. So Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. I've already paraphrased that. With him were about 600 men, among whom was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. He was a son of Ichabod's brother, Ahitub, son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. So there's another, that last sentence is another comment from the narrator. Not only does the king not know what's going on with the only other person who has a weapon, but no one is aware as they're chilling under the pomegranate tree. Now those of you that have been here recent weeks, those of you who are careful readers, there were a bunch of name drops here in the previous verses. Let me just ask you a quiz and I'll, and I'll lead you. Is it, are these name drops positive or are they negative? They are negative. Uh, Ichabod, meaning the glory is gone. Phineas, um, Eli, these are not exemplary people as we look back a few chapters. In fact, they were wiped out. And so it's the relatives of these non-exemplary people who are hanging out with the king, the commander-in-chief, under the pomegranate tree as the superpower is about to take them out, the Philistines. One commentator writes this. He says, His own royal glory gone, where else would we expect Saul to be than with a relative of glory gone. One way to translate or understand that name, Ichabod, is glory gone, or where is the glory, or where is the honor? This is the company that the commander-in-chief is with, hanging out under the pomegranate tree. This is not a good situation. All right, so let's see. Where are we? We've made it through... Um, we've made it through verse 3. Yes? So let's, uh, thank you, let's, uh, let's pick it up and look at verses 4 through 7. And this is where we're going to see the core of what God is, has opened my eyes to in this unit of Scripture in verses 4 uh, through 7. In fact, Jonathan has two intangibles that his father lacks, and we're going to see this in 4 through 7. So on each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozes and the other Sena. One cliff stood to the north toward Michmash and the other to the south toward Geba. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows. These people who do not follow the covenant-keeping God of Israel. That's what, what, what he's talking about. These are not people who are in the covenant. Let's go over to their outpost. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Verse 7. 
Do all that you have in mind, his armor bearer said. Go ahead, I am with you, heart and soul. So they go into this precipitous area. Jonathan and his armor bearer. Uh, they, they They are heading into enemy territory, just the two of them. Now this, just as military philosophy, doesn't sound like the best plan. But we see that Jonathan, there's so much about Jonathan that I connect with here. Um, We see that his confidence is not in his military plan. One of the things that that I connect with most here is uh, in verse 6, where he says, Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. And the reason this resonates with me is Jonathan hasn't been given a vision of the outcome here. And I have very, very rarely, I've never been in a battle, but I've been in other kinds of battles and hard times, and I've rarely been given a vision or an outcome from the Lord about what is actually going to go down. Maybe God has given that to you. That's not something he's given to me, like supernatural revelation of, you know, this is a tough season you're in, Mike, and, and here's how it's going to end. Uh, I, I, I haven't had that, and I'm guessing many of you are with me. And that's where Jonathan is. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. He doesn't know the outcome. And then he says nothing, but his confidence, so he doesn't know the outcome, but his confidence in God is 100% that he can do whatever, anything. He uh, has infinite power. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. So it doesn't matter. We are outnumbered, even if we have the entire Israelite army with us. So God can work whether we have many or whether we have few. So this is Jonathan's attitude. So the first thing that he has, the first of these two intangibles, is a confident relational faith in God. His God-centered faith is central in what he is doing day in and day out, and he has massive confidence in, in, what, in what God can do, and he doesn't have certainty about whether God is going to do it or not. So I just relate to this so much. This is, this is I've, I've had to fight all kinds of different sorts of battles, and most of you have not been in military battles. A few of you have, but most of us haven't. The kind of battles we have are different, and we often don't know the outcome, but may God give us great confidence in Christ that he will see us through regardless of the outcome. That is what Jonathan has. He did, doesn't have a father showing him the way. He has actually a father showing him the opposite of the way to go. But Jonathan finds his way because of his faith. Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. This is the principle that Jonathan, he didn't have the book of Hebrews, but this is the principle that he is operating out of. He has this tremendous faith. It is a relationship with God. You know, people that are outside the church, outside the world, they view Jonathan, and if they know you or they know me, they probably view us as religious people. 
That's a word they use because they don't understand the kind of confidence a person can have through a relationship through the creator and sustainer and savior of the world. It is not religious at all. I mean, I think of myself as like the least religious person in the world. By God's grace, that's what I am. But I understand how the world views me and views us. But we are people of faith. And Jonathan has this faith. He lived in not an ideal world, and his father is not showing him the way. And he has this faith to face battles. I don't know if you're in a battle right now. You're either coming out of one, in one, or going into one likely in this broken world that we live in. Our battles are very different, but with faith in Jesus Christ, we can have the same sort of confidence. I mean, this is an outrageous confidence that Jonathan has. As two guys are going to go take on some contingent of, of, of soldiers uh, of the superpower. I mean, this is confidence in God, not in military strategy that he is after. And we also can have that kind of confidence in life as we face hard times. On Friday, I saw an example of, of, of a confident person who's in crisis right now. You can pray for her. Many of you know uh, Jane Shoemaker. She is in a nursing home. She's incredibly weak. I mean, she's beyond thin and frail. She has lost a lot of weight, and her eyes are dim. And I uh, went into her room on Friday, just there a brief time, and uh, the, she's got a roommate. The roommate has a visitor, which is a pastor. It's, it's always kind of like, okay, this is going to be interesting. Um, as I read scripture or pray or talk about Jesus with, in these tight quarters with, with other people, I'm telling you the story because I, as I'm talking with Jane, and I, I got to a certain point in my conversation with her and my encouragement to her, and this is a, a hard this is a hard place to be. Those of you that have visited her, it's, it's hard. And those of you that haven't, you know, many of you have visited someone. It's, it's a hard place to be. And I got to a point, I said to her, Jane, would you like me to pray for you? And she, like, in her frail weakness, yes, like, she, she like, is, is doing a Jonathan. She, like, has confidence. Like, of all the things that I'm saying, not a lot that's, that's got her going or got her perked up or, or anything like that. I mean, she's happy for my visit. She's very pleasant. But then I say, would you like me to pray for you? And, and there is some place deep within her, this confidence, this faith in that God can help me and be with me. Yes, pray for me. So this is what Jonathan has. This is what I saw in Jane even for a brief time. These are one of the two intangible things that Jonathan has. He doesn't have a father showing him the way to go. A second thing that Jonathan has is a genuine, loyal, same-gender friendship. A genuine, 
loyal, same-gender friendship. I'm putting same-gender on here. It's another sermon. Should we be very close, husbands with our wives and wives with our husbands? Absolutely, that's another sermon. That's not what we have in this text. So let's put our eyes back on the text so you can see where I'm coming from. So imagine you're the low-ranking, very low-ranking person in the Israelite military. You're the armor-bearer. You are the armor-bearer of the son of the king, of the commander-in-chief, but you're the armor-bearer. And his idea is for the two of us to go take on the superpower. (laughs) What's his response? Verse 7. His response transcends a military relationship. Do all that you have in mind. Go ahead. I am with you, heart and soul. This is a close friend. Not just a comrade in arms. This is a close friend. I am with you in heart and soul. We're going to see more in future chapters about Jonathan and close friendship. But this may be one of his friendships that is overlooked in 1 Samuel. His friendship with his armor bearer, who isn't just following orders and being a good soldier, but he is with him. He's with him. They have a tremendous relationship. And so one of the second intangibles that I want us to see that is so relevant to our lives today is Do you have, I'm asking you the question, I've been asking myself the question this week, do you have a very close, same gender friend for whom you, you can do courageous and hard things for the Lord, that you pray for one another, that you are with each other? Do you have someone that could say to you, a close, believing friend who would say to you, go ahead. I am with you heart and soul when God called you to do some outrageous thing for his kingdom. Do you have a friend like that? What this passage is speaking into our lives is relevant for those of us who have not experienced the ideal of wisdom being passed down generation after generation, who don't have this Christian legacy and parents and grandparents and great-grandparents to go to. Jonathan doesn't have that. But he has this close friend, and he has this confident faith. Those of you that know me uh, know I I love to read. I love to learn from saints who've gone before us from different centuries and different traditions and different places, um, including our Sunday school is talking about the island of Malta. We don't have time to get into that today, but to go into the colonial period, One of the people that I've looked to and read about and admired is this guy, George Whitfield. And I'm going to read to you, uh, for those of you who never heard of him, uh, maybe a good way to describe him is, you know, of of the last most recent generation, Billy Graham, you might say Billy Graham is the George Whitfield of the most recent generation. He was a gifted evangelist and had a tremendous heart for, for the gospel going into the lives and changing communities and, 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 and provinces and, and areas in both the UK and in the colonies here. He traveled the world preaching the gospel. 
as he traveled, probably more than anyone else in his time period, the guy traveled a lot and spoke a lot, as he traveled, he somehow maintained very close friendships with men. Very close friendships. And I'm going to just read to you, there are so many letters I could have read to you, but I'm, and I'm just going to read to you part of a letter he's writing to a friend. And I, this is for men, but this is also for women. But I, my own experience, uh, give me an amen if this is true, if this is your experience, this isn't scripture, this is my own experience, is that men, we are pretty lame, generally, at developing close friends with other men. Amen? This hasn't always been true in the life of the church. So listen to the language. I've cut out most of the letter. I've only put the part of the letter, so you don't even know what the letter is about. I've put in the part of the letter where he's speaking with affection to this friend, and we don't even know his, the friend's name. He calls him dear brother. This was written August 15, 1739. He's on board a ship called the Elizabeth, and he's writing to his friend, my dear brother, the agony I was in at your departure and the many strong cryings and tears which I offered up to God afterwards plainly show that I love you in sincerity and truth. This is at the beginning of his letter. And then I'm skipping the letter for you, going toward the end of the letter, skipping the main content of the letter. Near the end of the letter, you see, my dear brother, even just that phrase, we, we just don't speak that way, we don't text that way, we don't write that way. My dear brother, how freely I deal with you. He's saying there, we've gone to deep places, and, I, and in this letter I'm going to deep places, and I'm and I'm. I'm, I'm, I'm freely dealing with, with deep stuff in your life. It is because I love you with a peculiar love. That is gospel manhood in the 1700s right there that we don't do very well. I love you with a peculiar love. Never did my heart exult. Never did my heart leap for joy at the, at the fight of any relation as at the fight of you. So this is the old language here. What he's saying is his prayers and longings for this friend to know the Lord, that his fight for that has been stronger than any of his extended family members. That's what he's saying to his friend. Those of us that have family members, if you've been walking with the Lord, you've prayed for them. If they don't know him, you, you, you want them to have Jesus be supreme in their lives. He's saying, my heart leaps for joy, has exulted at the fight of any relation as at the fight of you. Surely God intends to give me my dear brother. So this, this guy's like on the edge of professing faith or walking away from the Lord and that's the gist of the letter, so that's the part I skipped. I'm wanting you to see their friendship and the affection. How shall I say farewell? If you have opportunity, pray right to your most affectionate 
though unworthy brother, George Whitfield. Write to me. Write to me. Pray for me. So, two intangible things in this text that Jonathan has didn't come from his dad, didn't come from... In this text, we see his relationship with the Lord and we see his relationship with his armor bearer, this close friend. So, if you're responding to this like, yeah, I don't have anybody like that in my life, whether we're talking about George Whitfield or whether we're talking about Jonathan, I don't have anybody like that. We want to help you. Maybe you have someone and you just need to get that going, that relationship, and make that time. But we also want to help you go one-on-one with someone, not just to talk about the life stuff, but like George Whitfield said in his letter, I, I, I feel freedom to talk with you about this thing that we can't really talk about when our friendship is superficial. I'm talking about mostly sin and temptation and, and, and those, those things that go on inside of us. It's really hard to talk to somebody about that unless you know them well. And we really need to talk about those things. So we want to help you at Cornerstone facilitate that if, if you don't have that. You can check on your prayer card one-on-one and we will try and we will prayerfully help you get connected with someone or you can text the church phone number and say, I, 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 God put this, this text, God spoke to me through this text and I need, I need a Jonathan and an armor bearer kind of relationship, whether it's man to man or woman to woman and we will help connect you. Okay. Now I need to pick up the pace. Say, pick up the pace. Now I got to pick up the pace. We hit the main things here, but I, w- I want to finish out today's text and let's, um, let me pick up the pace. So we're through verse 7, right? Yeah, so let's, let me pick it up here. Let's look at 8 through 14. In fact, um, what we're going to see here in uh, 8 through 14 is, is Jonathan executing his plan. So he has this plan to go over there to the superpower Just two soldiers. Here we go. Jonathan said, Come then, we will cross over toward the men and let them see us. If they say to us, Wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. Let me just pause here and tell you my thinking on this. So I think what he's saying here is if they perceive us as a threat, they're going to come and take us as prisoners of war and we're just going to stay where we are if that's how they perceive us. That's how I understand verse 9, verse 10. But if they say, Come up to us, we will climb up, because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. Verse 11, so both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Probably not the best military philosophy, but let's just show it to, let's just show ourselves to the superpower. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. Those of you that were here last week, remember, This wasn't a real confident military. They were hiding in holes as the battle's about to start. So they see these guys, and they do not see them as a threat. Verse 12, the men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come up to us, uh, come up to us, and we'll teach you a lesson. So just come to us. Come on over. We'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. So I think Jonathan's thought through this. 
If, if they tell, if they don't think we're a threat and they just say, come on over, then we're going to go and God's going to give them to us. That, that, that's what Jonathan's thinking. So Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer right behind him. Notice, who's in the front? Who's in the at-risk position? It's not the lower-ranking guy. It's, it's the son of the king. He's in front, his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan, meaning he's taking them out. And his armor bearer followed. He has no weapon, he has no sword, and yet he killed behind him. He's taken the rest of the guys out. Verse 14, in that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. They were under threat by the superpower, and God has given 20 soldiers into the hand. I was looking online at the location of where this went on, and I went to a website, an Israeli website, about rock climbing. These are the first rock climbers. They climbed up to where they were. This is the actual location, and it's a climbing place. We've got at least one climber, Don Brammer. He's not here today. But this is a place that people go climbing. So Jonathan and his armor bearer climbed up and took these guys out. They executed their plan. That's what we see in 8 through 14. God did something extraordinary through the two of them. Let's finish up, come back to our text, and look at what else happens. Verse 15. So then panic struck the whole army. So not just those 20, the whole army. Those in the camp and field, and those in the outposts, and raiding parties. They divided into three, remember? And the ground shook. Careful reader. God sent an earthquake. He is communicating to everyone. The ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. Verse 16, Saul's outlooks at Gibeah and Benjamin saw the army melting away in all directions. Then Saul said to the men who were with him, Muster the forces and see who has left us. <laughs> so I don't know if you, you're reading this the way I'm reading this, but I'm reading this with like some, are you kidding me? So remember, they're at the Ritz-Carlton. And there's this stuff going on and an earthquake. Muster the forces and see who has left us. The commander-in-chief has no idea about the military engagement that is underway. When they did... It was Jonathan and his armor bearer who were not there. So they did roll call, and there's two missing, and it's the son of the king. Verse 18, Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God. Those of you that have been here for weeks and months, alarm bells should be going off. Superstition, Stevie Wonder, we need the ark. We're, we're going into battle now, so we need the ark. That's the only way we rub it the right way, then, then maybe we'll win. So this is how Saul is thinking superstitiously. At that time, it was with the Israelites, the ark. While Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the Philistine camp increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. In other words, okay, maybe we don't need the ark. So Saul has learned something here at verse 19. Verse 20, and we're going to go through verse 23 and be done. Then Saul and all his men assembled and went to the battle. They found the Philistines in total confusion, striking each other with their swords. Those Hebrews who had previously been with the Philistines, so those are called traitors, 
and had gone up with them to their camp, went over to the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. So they went back to the winning side now at the end of verse 21. So the deserters are back. Verse 22, when all the Israelites who had hidden in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were on the run, they joined the battle in hot pursuit. So the Lord rescued Israel that day, and the, mat, and the battle moved on beyond Beth Haven. So God rescues Israel as Saul is, is dithering. He, he's, he's, okay, who are we missing? Who, who, who started this battle? Uh, let, let, let's get the ark. Okay, we, we, we don't need the ark. And God so clearly uses Jonathan and his armor bearer in this situation. Confident, relational faith in God. Genuine, loyal, same-gender friendships. These are the two things I want you to be thinking about today. Let's bow our heads and ask God to help us to have this word impact our lives today and this week. Lord, we thank you for this passage We thank you, Lord, for your greatness and your work in faithful people. Free us from a moralism and thinking, okay, I I, I need to be like Jonathan. On one level, we need to be like Jonathan. Lord, the hero in this passage is you. We need to be close to you. And Jonathan was close to you. May we be close to you and may we get close to you through friendships, women with other women, and men with other men, where we go deep and we are with one another in heart and soul and mind and body and in dangerous things that God might call us to do for his kingdom. We pray in his name. Amen.